Hi, it's Greg Dalton. I'd like to hear your comments on the show, topics we should cover, and guest suggestions. You can reach me at greg at climateone.org. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. The energy industry is used to wild cycles of boom and bust. But even for veterans, today's markets are gut-wrenching. Europe is looking to phase out both Russian oil and gas, uh, both critical to current European industry, heating homes and businesses, and generating electricity. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has forced Europe to totally rethink how it handles its own energy needs. And we're seeing now a lot of supply chain challenges, including for key, key clean energy technologies. And how is all this energy market chaos impacting U.S. climate goals? There is uh, any given day of the week, an administration official loudly arguing for more oil and gas, and any other day of the week, an administration official pondering openly whether or not clean energy is actually the true path to peace, security, and freedom. Disrupted energy markets, up next on Climate One. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine and surging inflation disrupt global energy markets, even insiders are scrambling to make sense of this moment. In one major move, the European Union has agreed to ban imports of 90% of Russian crude oil by the end of the year. That will increase demand from other suppliers. An announcement of the agreement sent oil prices soaring. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has signaled it wants more oil and gas extracted now to ease the pain at the pump ahead of the upcoming midterm elections. At the same time, it also says it remains committed to eventually replacing oil and gas with cleaner energy to cut carbon emissions. On the show today, we're going to sort out this messy and perplexing puzzle of switching fuels while keeping the economy humming. David Turk is Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Energy. Kate Larson is a partner at the Rhodium Group, an independent research firm where she leads work on international energy and climate change. And Justin Gway is Director for Global Climate Strategy at the Sunrise Project. As Europe moves away from dependence on Russian oil, I asked Kate Larson how that would affect the oil market globally and in the United States. Uh, Europe is looking to phase out both Russian oil and gas, uh, both critical to uh, current European industry, heating homes and businesses, and generating electricity. Uh, and so really an important piece of Europe's journey toward decarbonization, which they have committed to fully, is understanding in the short term how to meet the needs of the public and, and keep industry running for the next year with the real risk of supplies being cut off, in particular gas supplies. But then also looking into the long term of what uh, Europe needs to do to wean itself off of uh, oil and gas supplies writ large, but in particular from problematic autocratic states uh, like Russia. The U.S. is facing the same challenges. It's a global market for oil. We're seeing oil prices rise, even though we're producing a significant, uh, almost all of our own domestic supply. Those global prices really impact us at home. So there's a lot that we can do and, and that we are doing in the U.S. and in Europe. A, a lot of that is to really quickly reduce our demand for those fuels um, as quickly as possible to weather the short-term crisis, but also to build the future that we need. And that means uh, rapidly scaling up electric vehicles, both passenger and, 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 and heavy-duty vehicles, finding the alternative fuels, clean fuels, uh, biofuels and electrofuels that can replace oil in our vehicles, but also looking for replacements for gas and industry, and uh, in particular, looking at renewable hydrogen. And the U.S. is really well positioned to be a supplier of the next wave of all of those clean fuels and energy. And this is the moment that we need to seize using our legislative authority and our regulatory authority to make sure that the U.S. is the source of these clean fuels and technologies for Europe and others so that we're not at the dependency of autocratic states uh, who are using the profits from, from those fuels to, to uh, invade Ukraine currently. <laughs> Right. And, and Putin's taken in a lot more uh, through fossil fuel sales than he did uh, a year ago because those prices are up. Uh, Dave Turk, uh, the Biden administration has signaled it wants more oil and gas now to ease the pain at the pump ahead of the upcoming midterm elections. What's the administration trying to do to meet this moment in energy and climate, balancing the immediate needs and the long term climate imperative? 
I think one thing we need to appreciate is um, there are really three different interrelated crises I think we're trying to deal with. And we're trying to deal with this certainly from the Biden administration part, working with key allies in Europe and others around the world. One is the climate crisis. And of course, the climate crisis has been with us, unfortunately, for years. We've not done what we should have done uh, as much at the volume, the scale, the pace uh, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, let alone over the last couple year period of time. The IPCC analysis, all that we see is just underscoring uh, just an even greater sense of urgency to get our acts together, not just with targets that are out there 30 years into the future, but the real world action now so that we can actually do the kinds of things that we need to on that front. So we've got that crisis. COVID-19 has really thrown energy more broadly out of whack in all sorts of different ways. The energy markets uh, have been in turmoil over the last couple of years. And we're seeing now a lot of supply chain challenges, including for key, key clean energy technologies, whether in the U.S. or in the world as well. And then you put on top of that the third crisis of Putin and Ukraine and the uh, complete naked aggression from the uh, from Putin to uh, the Ukrainians. And that has thrown not just in Europe, but because a lot of the energy markets, of course, are inter related in one way or another, whether truly global like oil or natural gas, which is semi global commodity at this point uh, out of whack uh, as well and throwing supply chain uh, supply chains even more out of whack as well. So we're trying to focus on uh, the near term, but the long term and trying to focus on affordability, reliability and climate change and sustainability all at uh, all at once. And uh, it's not easy to say the least. These three crises are incredibly challenging to navigate. Indeed. So Justin Gway there, you know, COVID, climate, Ukraine, uh, throw in there an administration that has razor thin uh, control of two branches of government. How do you think the Biden administration is doing to address this energy situation and climate right now? Well, look, I think the first and most important thing to say is that these are obviously difficult times. And so we don't, as the climate community, begrudge the Biden administration having to make difficult choices. But I think the challenge that we see when you sit in our seat is that it's a bit difficult to tell exactly the direction we're headed. Um, so there is uh, any given day of the week, an administration official loudly arguing for more oil and gas, and any other day of the week, an administration official pondering openly whether or not clean energy is actually the true path to uh, peace, security, and freedom. And obviously, one of those two messages is the one that uh, appeals to my heart and to many uh, in the climate communities. Um, but I think it's a reflection of uh, a somewhat uh, schizophrenic approach we see right now. Um, but I think it's important to separate the nuance here, which is that even in the climate community, no one begrudges the notion that there is an immediate crisis moment in Europe and that there is an immediate need for support or diversification or redirection of existing fossil fuel supplies to avoid the economic pain uh, and the fallout from the invasion of the Ukraine. So that, that I don't think is particularly controversial, even in the climate community. The thing that we are deeply worried about is the oil and gas industry's cynical opportunism and attempt to secure approval of a wave of new infrastructure, which is not actually destined to support Europe in its time of crisis, but is really meant to speed its approval to entrench uh, our reliance on fossil fuels, which is, of course, not uh, energy security, it's energy insanity. And I don't think from where I sit that that's what the Biden administration is trying to do. Uh, that is clearly not the direction of travel uh, of president-elect uh, Biden or sitting President Biden and his administration. Uh, but it's very difficult uh, when we hear uh, different messages just about every other day. And so I think the conversation we want to be seeing and having is one that is reflected by the EU's formal plan to get off gas, as Kate said, the Repower EU plan. That uh, plan is very clear in its goals. By the end of this year, if not next, they're going to reduce their reliance on Russian gas by two thirds, not by increasing their overall gas reliance and gas burn, but by diversifying their supplies and reducing their overall consumption. And by 2030, they're going to reduce gas consumption by 30%. So the biggest signal being sent to global markets today is that Europe is going to rely less on gas going forward. There is not a booming new growth market in Europe for US shale producers to capture. There is a disappearing, vanishing market in Europe and a clean energy boom. And so the conversation we would love to be having is one around a clean Marshall Plan. What are the, what are the investment resources? What are the investment needs to help 
unlock solar, wind, long duration storage, green hydrogen at scale today, because unlike the last big supply shock that we all lived, well, I didn't live through it, <laughs> but many people did live through in the 70s. Uh, this time, clean energy is ready for prime time. You know, our stuff is cheaper, faster to deploy. It is ready to provide uh, ultimate security, which is something that more fossil fuels simply can't do. And I think from where I sit, I do believe that is the long-term goal of the Biden administration. But I do think we we need a bit more clarity in the moment because, as I said, we're seeing a, a awful lot of noise generated by the oil and gas industry, which is meant uh, to serve as political cover for a bunch of assets that are stranded at best uh, and at worst cynical opportunities to lock the rest of the world, namely Asia, into our supplies for the long haul. And of course, Europe has a bit of an advantage. They don't have quite the you know fossil fuel extraction in Europe as as the U.S. has. There's not quite the same kind of incumbent industry defending its turf there. But David Tur Dave Turk, your response to that that the administration is not being focused and clear and ambitious. Well, I have to say I, I agree with Justin on a lot of uh, what he said, and appreciate these are not easy circumstances. There are challenges here that we're trying to work through, especially to try to figure out how we help Europe in this time of need. Uh, and the rest of the world as well, and send a clear message, um, right? We had naked aggression going, a bigger state invading another state in the 21st century in 2022. Quite remarkable. I think a lot of people uh, were skeptical it was going to happen, but it did happen. And uh, democracy's on the line, human rights are on the line, self-determination's on the line, uh, all those kinds of things that uh, we need to really be uh, thoughtful and push back, uh, push back uh, on as aggressively as we possibly can completely agree with Justin, uh, clean energy is ready for prime time. And uh, we're seeing that already. It doesn't mean that we can take the accelerator off. Uh, in fact, it's the exact opposite, right? We should be leaning in, doubling down, tripling down. Uh, we've realigned our whole Department of Energy uh, accordingly to try to use the $62 billion that we've been given as part of the bipartisan infrastructure legislation to really accelerate the clean energy transition in our country. Uh, whether you're talking all sorts of renewables, whether you're talking clean green hydrogen, as Kate was mentioning, uh, or geothermal, uh, our grids, uh, you name it, we're trying to lean in on that piece. There's still some unfinished piece of business on Capitol Hill that we're working with key senators on, uh, getting some of those tax incentives and some other pieces is incredibly, incredibly valuable. And I think we not only need uh, to work with our European colleagues on a, a, a clean Marshall plan, as uh, Justin said, for Europe, but um, that's the way we should be thinking about it here in the U.S. That's the way Japan should be thinking about it. Uh, I've made the argument many times, if we had more clean green hydrogen in the system right now, if we had more offshore wind in the system right now, if we had more EVs in the system right now, if we had uh, more, you name it, uh, in terms of clean energy technology, we'd be in a much, much better place, certainly from the carbon footprint, but we'd be in a much, much better place from an energy security side of things, from a resilient side of things. And so now's the time to push the accelerator down even further, uh, not to slow up on that front. And um, uh, we hope uh, there's an opportunity to work with key senators. There's a hope uh, we're working with key ministers around the, uh, the world, ministries around the world to really do that. Kate, uh, we have a tendency to want this uh, transition from fossil fuels to clean to be orderly and predictable. And Tom Friedman in the New York Times wrote an article recently slamming oil companies for pursuing business they know is incompatible with the livable economy. He also slams the Greens for, quote, there is no immaculate pathway from brown energy to green energy. The road is paved with cruel trade-offs. Pick your poison but grow up, end quote. Have clean energy advocates oversimplified the transition to, from fossils to clean, think, saying it would be happy and orderly? I mean, I think we all wish it would be that way. And there was a world where it could have been that way if everyone had gotten on board for that when they should have, right? You know, a decade ago, we saw the writing on the wall and, and, and uh, uh, both government and industry failed to uh, set up the conditions for the, the future that we, ne we know we needed. Um, now we are in uh, the, uh, not even the second best situation where we need to do everything yesterday. And I think the challenge with that is one, you know, I think there's a, uh, a really clearly articulated vision and a lot of great work that's been done by the environmental community in particular to, in particular to help phase out coal and a, a strong vision about 
what we don't want. <laughs> and I think a, a, a good, strong vision about what we need and the end and the end goal of what we need, which is massive, massive deployment of renewables, of electric vehicles, of clean hydrogen. But to get there, we need more than uh, what we don't want, right? And so like a, th this vision needs to include much more detail about how we get there. And I think we've been really focused on sort of the, the, the regulatory pathways of uh, requiring cleaner fuels technologies to phase in over time. And the economics are really great now for electric vehicles, wind, solar, but at the scale that we need. So not just to begin to phase out the brown energy that we already have, but to build significantly more clean electricity to electrify all of all of the things that are currently running on oil or gas, we need a massive build out um, of, of electricity infrastructure. And a lot of that's being bogged down by permitting and siting in communities across the U.S. where there is no constituency advocating for really hard choices like putting a wind farm in communities in the Midwest that are actively advocating against it. And when you don't have um, the same kind of advocacy in favor of these choices, and I think this requires a lot of hard work in bringing communities together and community engagement and making sure that it's done in a fair, just, equitable way, that's really where the rubber hits the road. And I, I think that's an area where, again, better collaboration and, and focus on the details of this massive scale up. And we're going to need industries to produce these products and infrastructure, and they they need to be uh, clean as well. And so understanding that, uh, I think both the environmental community, industry and government working together to really, you know, be clear eyed about the, the, the requirements for building this new energy infrastructure uh, and, and getting real about that. Not just we need a 100% renewable future, it's how do we get there? And I think that's where we could, we could come together for, for, for more focus. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the disrupted global energy market. Coming up, how does solar power factor into the move away from fossil fuels that are disrupting our climate and economy? Solar has had is such an incredibly important part currently of our clean energy build out. The cost reductions we've seen over the last several years has just been incredible. And we need solar to play a huge, huge role in the near term, medium term, and long term. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the disrupted global energy markets with Kate Larson, Justin Guay, and David Turk. The U.S. solar industry recently cut its forecast for this year and next by nearly half due to possible new tariffs placed on modules imported from Southeast Asia. That's because a small American producer filed a complaint with the U.S. Department of Commerce, claiming China is circumventing existing tariffs by pushing production to nearby countries. I asked Justin Guay how big a deal new tariffs will be on solar modules that go into both residential and utility-scale projects. I mean, yeah, I don't think you can overstate how big a deal it would be. And it's an unfortunate own goal when we are already behind the eight ball, as Kate was saying, when it comes to deploying clean energy to get off of fossil fuels. Um, again, I think that uh, everything you hear from the White House in the Biden administration is that this is not the end goal of this process and that they seek to wrap it up quickly. But it really needs to be wrapped up as quickly as humanly possible because it's sending an incredibly powerful dampening signal in the solar industry, which is leading to lower, potentially lower installations than during the Trump years, which is absolutely insane for a climate-focused Biden administration to preside over. Again, I, I think that it's pretty clear from the public statements we hear that's not what what they want, but it doesn't really matter. Um, what we need to do is actually wrap this thing up and get on with deploying solar. 
and that's supposedly going to happen. The Commerce Department said they're not uh, going to happen in August. David, I realize that you're at the Department of Energy, not the Department of Commerce, which is looking into uh, this China uh, solar tariff dispute filed by a U.S. company. But what can you tell us about the prospect of, of I, I'm still you know, <laughs> understanding what Justin just said, that solar deployment under Biden could be less than under Trump? Well, it, it, solar has had... Um, is such an incredibly important part currently of our clean energy build out uh, has been for uh, several years now. The cost reductions we've seen over the last several years has just been incredible. And we need solar to play a huge, huge role in the near term, medium term and long term. When I worked at the uh, International Energy Agency, one of the key milestones and things I felt the best about was when we were able to declare sol solar as the new king in electricity, which was a couple of years ago in the market report, given where the numbers were in the U.S. and countries around the, uh, around the world. So we absolutely need to uh, rely on that technology. So a couple things here. One, if I could just pick up on the permitting piece, which I think is relevant on the solar part, but relevant in a lot of other clean energy technologies. It's something I'm really glad, Kate, you brought it up. It's something that we've been spending an awful lot of time on at the Department of Energy and others. The president issued uh, a, a whole robust plan. I encourage folks to go look at it uh, on the permitting and to really uh, do the hard work. It is hard work. It's hard work to figure out how to uh, streamline permitting, how to work in an interagency, how to work with state and local governments. You got to do the NEPA review. You got to do the environmental reviews. But there's ways, especially when it comes to renewable energy and other clean energy technologies, the pace and scale of what we need to do, whether it's solar or wind or you name it, is so immense, as Kate said, and the rhodium analysis shows again and again, along with other terrific modelers uh, out there, we've got to really get our handle on the permitting side. And so we've got this process now 90 days for all agencies, including our department, to step up. I uh, actually just had lunch with Janet McCabe, who's the deputy over at uh, Environmental Protection Agency. For those who know Janet, who's just terrific. And we spent a good portion of the lunch talking about the permitting issue and how to work together uh, on, on that piece. Second part, uh, specific to solar as well, is uh, this is an administration who's genuinely and actionably interested in uh, building out our domestic manufacturing uh, capabilities. And uh, whether it comes to solar or other clean energy technologies, one of the pieces uh, of legislation that's still pending on the Hill that we'd love to get enacted uh, is the SEMA, uh, so-called SEMA bill or the Ossoff bill. It goes by a few different names, but there's some incredibly powerful tax incentives that would allow our domestic industry a real fighting chance to compete with other international actors and really build out not just on existing solar PV technology, but the cutting edge technology going forward. And so we look forward to working with Congress on that front. And then on the Commerce uh, Department front, Obviously, this is the Commerce Department. I work at the Energy Department. They've got their processes, uh, the quasi-judicial process that they're uh, running along those lines. Uh, we certainly have been hearing from some of the same advocates, and we talk to industry all the time on the solar industry side of things, and we're aware very much of what's going on. And certainly sharing that information with our commerce colleagues, you know, as Justin said, we've got people like Gina McCarthy. We've got people who know these issues inside and out, who live and breathe these issues uh, like myself on a daily basis. And uh, we're, we're, looking for, uh, we're looking for solutions uh, going out of here. But uh, we will also do it in a way that uh, helps build out the domestic manufacturing capability as well. Uh, Kate, recently at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Florida, Nancy Pelosi was asked whether Democrats were going to pass climate legislation. Of course, she's the person who got climate through the House bill in 2009. And she basically shrugged, saying it's in the Senate's hands. Nobody knows if Joe Manchin is negotiating a good faith or doing what Senator Chuck Grassley did with Obama on health care, pretending to negotiate, knowing that they would never really agree to anything. So what did you think, Kate, when you read about Pelosi's comment about getting something through before the midterm elections? I, well, I was actually in the green room uh, because I was the next speaker <laughs> uh, after after the the actual speaker um, of the house, and I I was listening very closely because I think it's a really important signal that she could have sent <laughs> to a very receptive audience about the priority of this of, of this issue of climate change in particular, and and in seizing this moment. Um, she said many times that we're doing this for the children. And I think that's, that was probably true in the 90s. 
now we're doing this for us because uh, we're all being affected by it right now. And I think this part of the frustration is that um, we understand that there's a lot going on right now and, and really critical crises to address. But I think dealing with this the energy situation in light of where we need to be on climate is a central part of resolving the economic issues, the U.S. industrial base issues that are important to many senators, and also critical to uh, shoring up Europe in in the face of um, of uh, this this crisis precipitated by Russia. So, I think that that it's very hard for politicians in particular to multitask, which is at the detriment of climate change, which is a generational issue that we keep losing sight of as we deal with these near-term crises. And that's very frustrating. I think there are so many components of the, um, you know, what was Build Back Better and now part of this reconciliation process, part of the House bill that was passed that are going to be critical for uh, uh, seizing this opportunity for the U.S., uh, incentives for Again, renewables deployment, um, tax incentives and credits for for wind and solar, but also for uh, clean hydrogen, um, important incentives for carbon capture if we are going to be um, um, manufacturing all of these components and clean energy technologies and develop homegrown industries to do that. We're going to need carbon capture. That's going to be a critical part of decarbonizing U.S. industry and putting us in a place to provide those goods and materials for the rest of the world. So I, um, this, the clock is really ticking and it, it, we need all, all, everyone to be actively supporting this because it is central to solving the immediate crises that we're facing today. And it cannot wait uh, another decade, another year. So that's yeah, quite powerful that you were you were so close to her saying that, and she has been a strong leader and supporter of climate action. You know, here on Climate One, we'd like to talk about the technical issues in our brain, but also the human and personal and emotional. If we're, if the once in a decade window for major policy is closing. What does that mean for it's not about the kids anymore. It's about us. Kate Larson, what does that mean? Like, I, you know, you know, that on a personal level, knowing the weight as you do, as, as we all do, what that means if a decade window is closing, what does that mean for what we care about in us personally and emotionally? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's frustrating because uh, every moment now is the moment. <laughs> Um, and, uh, so, and I think part of it is, uh, for, for the last while, anyone working on this issue, scientists, researchers, there was this effort to remain nonpartisan and objective, right. To not get heated in the urgency. But I think what is missing now is an understanding of the urgency. And that's actually an objective objective fact that researchers and scientists are very clear on. And so- And some I of them are my, going, chaining themselves to a fence and getting arrested. Have, have, are, are people you talk to thinking about, when do I start to go chain myself to a fence? Yeah. I mean, a good colleague of mine glued her hand to the floor and uh, ground in front of the Shell office building. Uh, she was a longtime lawyer working on the global climate negotiations. And all of us have reached that point, I think, where um, we want to maintain our professional objectivity and relevance in the conversation. And increasingly, that means um, uh, not divorcing your professional views from your personal views because we know better than anyone the urgency uh, and what's required. That um, I, you know, I I I wonder if if uh, a better use of my time uh, could be you know taking my child and my family and others um, to more and more protests. What else can I do? Um, and 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 do that in a way that doesn't um, diminish my professional <laughs> objectivity and, and impact, could it actually uh, improve it? Dave Turk, do you ever get to the point where you think that polite conversations like this about kind of, you know, are not enough that you want to like rip off the tie and go to the barricade, you know, do something that just like, we, we have these conversations that are polite and subtle and we try to introduce urgency and we know that it's not happening fast enough. So I'd say the following on this, and I, I've spent uh, many years of my life on on climate change efforts. I worked with Kate Beck in the State Department days when she was one of the negotiators doing phenomenal work uh, there, worked at Department of Energy before working on international climate and clean energy issues. And for the last five years before taking this job was at the International Energy Agency that was brought in to try to help 
uh, on the clean energy transition side of their portfolio and really pushing that agency. And I have to give credit to my friend and mentor, Dr. Fati Birol, who's done remarkable work at the IEA, including the 1.5 degree scenario that they put out, which I think was a game changer and a really insightful piece of analysis that I, I felt very proud to be a part, part of that team. So I'd say the following. One is um, the numbers are the numbers and the science is the science, right? And if people have uh, different numbers or if people have different science, there's the reason there's the scientific method. And there's the reason we should have uh, discussions to make sure we have the best numbers and the best evidence and the best information that we possibly can. I find it incredibly difficult as someone who's looked at the numbers, re-looked at the numbers, spent a lot of time looking at IPCC reports and different modeling scenarios and analysis. And I know Kate and Justin have spent an awful lot of time in their careers. If you don't come away alarmed and if you don't come away uh, really struck by, uh, as Kate was saying, the pace and scale of what we need to do at a historic level, uh, then you're either misreading it or you're not reading it or you're skimming over it or you're uh, wishing we're living in a world that we don't currently live in. And so the numbers are the numbers. And I think it's perfectly appropriate for scientists, for others to um, starkly lay out what the science is, starkly lay out what the numbers are, starkly lay out what the scenarios are. If your company or your government has agreed to a 1.5 degree scenario, Here's what a 1.5 degree scenario looks like going forward. And here's the incredibly constrained carbon budget that we're living in. And how do you make the numbers work? I've had conversations like that with the Saudi energy minister. I've had conversations like that with others. They're not always easy conversations to be had, but I think we need to be, uh, all of us in this field, need to be uh, very upfront and speaking truth to power and really putting that uh, putting that on, on, on the table. Second piece is... Um, I find it incredibly inspiring for people who've made their careers in the climate change space. And there's a different variety of different careers. You know, some people, you know, go into science, some people go into government, some people go into the NGO world. Justin did phenomenal work in the foundation world at Packard and ClimateWorks, uh, really leveraging those tools, uh, tools going forward along those lines. Encourage more people to get this, uh, to take on climate change uh, as a career. We're now hiring up a bunch of people for what we're calling our clean energy core. We're gonna hire up 750 people to spend $62 billion to transform large swaths of our energy economy. And we need really good people, creative people who are gonna leverage those resources as much as they possibly can with an incredible passion. And the civil servants we have here at the Department of Energy, a lot of other people in the government right now, incredibly created, incredibly talented. They're probably working 23 and a half hours a day these days to maximally take advantage of these kinds of opportunities. And sure, we all get frustrated, but I think the thing that keeps us going is there's a lot of other people out there who are putting their shoulders to the wheel and really trying to think creatively any different way to try to get us all moving. And I, I put a lot of stake, I have to say, in the real world and what's happening in the real world. Um, there's political rhetoric, there's commitments uh, 30 years down the line or 40 years down the line or 28 years down the line. What I put stock in is who's doing what in the real world and where are the numbers? Where are the numbers for this year? Where are the numbers for next year? What's the real world action uh, going on? And we're not seeing enough near real world action as we are, but for anyone who's uh, interested in a meaningful career that they can feel really proud about, like come on in as an entrepreneur, as a foundation person, as an NGO, and like get involved in the game and let's, uh, let's get this done. Yeah, and a lot of people are doing that. Uh, Justin, you know, if we are in a once-in-a-decade opportunity, should some things be considered now? Dave's talking about the real world that wouldn't have been uh, would have been unthinkable twelve months ago. Either uh, more more extraction in the short term. You know, fracked wells have a short lifespan and don't lock in expensive infrastructure like an LNG export terminal. Is that something? Should uh, the California Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant stay operating longer? because we know when nuclear gets shut down, fossils come online. What should be on the table to get something done this year before the midterms in the real world that David's talking about? There's a bunch embedded in that question. Um, well, look, I'll, I'll uh, answer the first one uh, or the last one first, which is on Diablo. I mean, I think that the climate community has been involving, evolving for quite a while and it's it's very clear that nuclear energy is not our enemy. Fossil fuels are. And I think it's really important that we 
fundamentally change our approach to nuclear energy, at least existing nuclear. It, it would be absolutely crazy to let it, it shut down uh, at a time when we are not making the progress we need to be making on clean energy deployment. So I'm just going to say that not entirely popular across the entire uh, swath of the climate community, but it's true. Um, and we need to deal with facts in this uh, work. So that's one. Um, speaking of fact, you just you just you just lost a bunch of liberal friends, but it's okay. Keep going. Yeah, that's okay. I I do my best to equally anger everybody. But um, when it comes to the other side of that question, which is more fossil fuel supplies, I want to reference the IEA net zero scenario, which Dave was mentioning earlier, which couldn't have been more clear. We cannot have any expansion on the supply side of fossil fuels if we're going to stay on a 1.5 trajectory. That was one of the most stark and profound findings of many that were extremely important that we in the climate community reference just about every single day. Um, and so I think, as Dave said, the science is the science, and we have to stay committed to that one way or the other, because there are going to be more crises, not less, going forward. We've just lived through a pandemic. We're living through a, the fallout of the invasion of the Ukraine. If we think this is going to get easier, we're kidding ourselves. So we have to be able to do hard things when times are hard. Um, so that's one point. The second point, though, is that we already have enough oil and gas supply, particularly gas supply and export terminal capacity to meet the commitments the Biden administration made to Europe to support them in their time of need. They committed 15 BCM immediately and 50 BCM by 2027. Um, billion, uh, uh, billion cubic meters. Billion yeah, so cubic meters of liquefied natural gas. Yes, sorry, too much jargon. And the reason I say that and I drop those numbers is that, again, the oil and gas industry is trying to loudly tell everybody with an ear shot that we need more, but we actually don't need more. We have enough when it comes to supporting Europe in its time of need and in this crisis. Uh, so that is a very important nuance that we need to be really clear about. And then when it comes to delivering energy security, peace and freedom and freedom from volatile gas prices for us, for Europe and for emerging Asia, which is looking at locking itself into a whole new wave of LNG import infrastructure. The reality is that more fossil fuel supply only deepens that reliance. It makes the economic pain worse, not better. So the only true path to dealing with all of the various crises we face is clean energy, whether it's the air pollution crisis, the climate crisis, our current energy security crisis. It, it couldn't be more straightforward. And so I think it's it's just really important that we, you know, send a signal amongst all this noise that clean energy is the path forward, not more fossil fuels. You're listening to a conversation about the effects of a disrupted global energy market. This is Climate One. Coming up, is it possible that soaring oil and gas prices will accelerate the move away from fossil fuels? On one hand, the changing economic environment makes it a lot more attractive to get off of fossil fuels, period. And the best way to do that is to electrify all the different things in your life that you possibly can. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Hopes for climate action were high when President Biden was inaugurated last year. But so far, he doesn't have many big wins on the board. In fact, he's playing defense most of the time. Kate Larson was a lead negotiator at the U.S. State Department in the years leading up to the Paris Climate Agreement. I asked her how much U.S. climate leadership around the world is flailing right now because not much has been accomplished at home. Yeah, I mean, the Paris Agreement was really a, a pivotal moment, right? We got commitment from all countries that every country will will uh, set plans for reducing their their emissions uh, in the next decade. But then, you know, starting to plan for a long-term deep decarbonization through mid-century, that was a historic landmark moment. The years immediately following Paris were really about ramping up ambition, getting more countries to make those commitments, uh, getting countries with commitments to dial up the ambition to go even further faster. Um, but we've really reached the end of that uh, period where we were focused on ambition and getting new goals, new targets announced, which was just the first step. And the Biden administration was pivotal with the leader summit that they arranged just a few months after the, the inauguration bringing all the major economies together and really um, making the leap to a very ambitious uh, commitment for 2030 to reduce U.S. emissions 50 to 52 percent. That's in line with the science and in line with what we need to do to reach net zero. It was a very big commitment. And it really helped to leverage other countries and economies to make similar 
similar ambitious commitments. So that was critical. And now the moment that we find ourselves in now, uh, the entire international community is pivoting to focus on implementation. How do we reach these targets? What do we need to do to get there? What policies are you putting in place for businesses that have made net zero commitments? Time to get serious. Rubber meets the road. How are you doing that? Um, everyone is focused on how to make this happen. And I think that is the, a particular challenge because um, many, many uh, countries are familiar with uh, the USMO when it comes to international agreements, uh, especially on climate, which is we're in when it's good for our politics or when we have uh, presidents who support climate change and we're out when they don't. And a lot of that back and forth thing really um, uh, reduces our leverage and our credibility in this space. And so everyone is looking to make sure that the U.S. will make good on these really ambitious commitments that we've set. And that is what everyone is looking for now. And I think um, the two big places they're looking to see uh, major changes are, you know, with the progress on the legislative front. So incremental progress with the infrastructure bill, big eyes looking for this, uh, the additional steps that were in the Build Back Better plan and not seeing a lot of movement there is dismaying. The other is on the regulatory front where the Biden administration does have executive authority and there've been uh, a lot of um, developments and new plans and proposals, um, but the clock is ticking in terms of getting um, really big new regulations on the books regulating oil and gas um, methane emissions, regulating emissions from the electric power sector, um, looking at long-term um, requirements for vehicles and trucks, and, and then starting to consider industry. So th that's where um, uh, the international community is really focused on looking for um, progress beyond um, goals and commitments from the Biden administration. And that's the moment that we're in now. Dave Turk, let's have you respond to that. You know, what can the administration do uh, legislatively and on the regulation side with uh, with the time and power that it has right now? Well, let me let me start and say this this very clearly. I, I, I feel incredibly proud to be part of this administration and to be working hand, uh, side by side with my boss, Secretary Granholm, who's just a phenomenal champion on clean energy with Administrator Regan at EPA and his deputy, Janet, Janet McCabe, with Secretary Buttigieg and his deputy, Polly Trottenberg, uh, with Gina McCarthy at the White House, uh, with Secretary Kerry and Secretary Blinken over at the State Department. Phenomenal colleagues who spent their, uh, in many cases, careers working on the climate change front. And uh, I feel incredibly proud to be working, working with them. Maybe just to speak uh, about the Department of Energy and what we do and why I feel pride and certainly what we're doing and our incredible, incredibly um, committed colleagues, both the political appointees, but also the civil servants as well. So I, I like to think of our strategy threefold. One is uh, for the first time ever, we have a Department of Energy that actually has an increasing number of tools in the tool belt to do deployment and demonstration the way we should be doing it in a country like the U.S., so $62 billion uh, from the bipartisan infrastructure legislation, that is an historic amount. That's the biggest thing to happen to the Department of Energy since the department was created in terms of actually accelerating the clean energy transition in the real, in the real world. It ends up being 60 new programs, 750 new people we're hiring to implement all those programs. $16 billion on grids, $9.5 billion on uh, clean hydrogen. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, uh, $7 billion on battery supply chains, uh, $5 billion on EV chargers and building out that infrastructure in historic uh, kind of ways. Uh, so do we need more? Absolutely. Do we need the tax incentives? Absolutely. We've talked about that in terms of getting more tools in the tool belt. We are an innovation powerhouse. Secondly, at the Department of Energy, we've launched a series of earth shots to really focus on those clean energy technologies that are not at the price levels we need them. There are a lot of clean energy technologies like solar, like wind, that are at price points that we need them to be at. We can keep reducing those costs and that gets them out there even at greater scale. But we need to get uh, clean hydrogen, electrolysis hydrogen. Uh, our goal is to get it down to a dollar per kilogram and use our 17 national labs like never before to drive that cost down. Long duration energy storage, drive that cost down. Direct air capture and carbon removal technologies uh, drive those costs down to historic levels as quickly as we can on a wartime footing on that front. 
And then what we have at the department is uh, huge partnership opportunities internationally where we're working with key countries like India, like Indonesia, like others, uh, where uh, if they can get their act together and accelerate the clean energy transition, good for their populations, good for the world uh, as well on that front. But partnerships with state and lo local communities, uh, with real world actors out there, uh, all stepping up doing our parts and uh, and getting things to move as quickly as we possibly can. So I think it's a very inspiring time to be part of the government. No doubt there are challenges that are uh, in our way. Um, this is not going to be easy. It was never going to be easy. Maybe as Kate said, if we started when we should have started or did more uh, when we should have uh, done more, we'd be in a better place right now. But that's not the world we're currently living in. And I think incumbent on us to step up to try to do everything we can in whatever roles we're currently in and uh, and make the most out of it. And that's certainly what we're doing at the Department of Energy. And I feel incredibly proud to be here. Why are oil prices in the U.S. rising when the government subsidizes the industry and the oil companies are making so much profit already? Dave, would you like to tackle that one? Yeah, ha happy to do it. And Kate uh, spoke about this a little bit earlier as well. Uh, we do have a global oil market with a global oil price uh, that's interconnected along those lines. So um, when you have a significant disruption and uh, Russia invading Ukraine and what has flowed from that has significantly disrupted uh, the oil markets. And uh, as to Justin's point, uh, we could have even more disruption to the oil markets. The EU right now is considering an oil ban. Uh, they're having some countries they need to navigate through, but that would uh, impact oil markets even further uh, going forward. And so as prices go up, it's not just the prices that they pay in Europe, it's prices that we pay here, prices that are paid all around the world. And we're trying to do everything we can, especially in this inflationary period, to try to keep costs down as much as they can for real people in the real world, in America, in, a, in the small town I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Illinois and in places around, uh, around the country. So we're trying to use the tools that we have in the tool belt uh, one thing we did uh, just to, uh, actually we've done it a few times now is uh, tap into our strategic petroleum reserve to try to bring more supply on in this near term to try to have uh, that price pressure uh, to decrease. But these are challenging times. There's no doubt about it. And we're trying to manage it as best uh, as best we can uh, out there, uh, out there going forward. Justin Gway, you know, one thing that uh, the North Star is certainly for me in thinking about this transition is electrify everything, homes, cars, mobility, that sort of thing. You know, how is that being helped or hurt in this disruptive moment? Because we have, you know, high gas prices, which are good for EVs, but EV prices are going up and they're hard to get. There's long waiting lines. How's that playing out for electrify homes and mobility? Well, I think on one hand, the changing economic environment makes it a lot more attractive to get off of fossil fuels, period. And the best way to do that is to electrify all the different things in your life that you possibly can. Uh, but economics aren't destiny. They are not everything. They are a necessary but insufficient condition for change. And so we have, as we've been talking about, any number of policy barriers, permitting barriers, other things that are keeping us from being able to electrify, as Kate can attest in her own home journey. It's extremely difficult even when you are uh, a very motivated consumer. And so I think it's really incumbent on everybody in the climate community to ditch the invisible chains that we put on ourselves, which is that as long as our stuff gets cheap and their stuff gets expensive, voila, everything takes care of itself. It won't. We need policy. We need leadership. We need everybody to uh, be you know, all hands on deck to actually remove the barriers in our way because it's not enough for uh, fossil fuels to get really expensive and our stuff to get cheap. We've really got to figure out ways to make this stuff easier um, for everybody to do. Let's land on that personal note and bring it home. I've uh, been working on heat pumps and and solar, et cetera. Kate, you know, share us. You are dedicated, you know, knowledgeable. You know, how is it as easy as it should be? Share a little bit of your joy or pain about trying to electrify everything around your home. Oh, well, you know, Justin is is the path leader on this and I am using his his blog like the Bible and yet being uh, a motivated and affluent uh, a homeowner, it is much more challenging than you would have thought. Just finding the right providers in a labor shortage with prices rising, all of those factors are really um, playing a role. And, you know, my uh, rooftop solar installation that was supposed to take eight weeks ended up taking 11 months and much of my backyard was destroyed in the process. So, you know, those types of things require 
um, you know, a better ecosystem, uh, understanding how all those pieces fit together and, and helping individuals make the right choices, making sure that there's support for the entire process. But it shouldn't be, um, you know, hoping that the system isn't evolves to be not require so much individual pain and, and oversight that there, it can be streamlined for everyone. Um, not just those of us who are highly motivated. <laughs> yeah. I have similar pain. It took a lot time, a uh, long time, a lot more money than my wife wanted. And, you know, and it's not as quite as simple as, uh, some people say like flip the switch. It'll be, you know, unicorns and solar, that sort of thing. Well, thank you so much for all of your time. Dave, did you have one last word? No, no, just uh, I feel Kate's pain. We're trying to work on this. We're trying to do everything we can at the Department of Energy to reduce those soft costs and make these things uh, as easy as they uh, as they should be and credit those who are leading the way uh, in their personal lives as well. It makes it easier for everybody else, Kate, um, and we'll try to do everything we can. We've got, for instance, this uh, new solar app plus, which uh, works with communities to try to reduce the amount of time the regulatory burden, all the hoops that you got to go through to get solar PV panels on your house. Similarly, to have chargers, uh, uh, level two chargers at your home as well. So that process can be as quick, as painless as it possibly can be. And of course, elections matter, right? Who your government officials are, what your policies are, make a huge, huge difference in terms of the overall incentive structure and making sure we've got phenomenally uh, talented folks in government really pushing the envelope from that side of things. It was worth the wait because I just got my PG&E bill and it was zero dollars. That felt pretty good. And more importantly, it is taking money out of Putin's pocket. It is defunding this war. Every dollar we take away from the fossil fuel industry is a dollar we're not investing in uh, a lack of a future for our children, a lack of a future for our planet. So even though it's hard, it's worth every minute, every cent you can spend if you can. So we don't want to leave people with the notion that this is impossible or they shouldn't do it. They should do it. And there's a million amazing reasons why. Justin Gway is Director of Global Climate Strategy at the Sunrise Project. We're also joined by Kate Larson, partner at the Rhodium Group, and Dave Turkis, Deputy Secretary at the U.S. Department of Energy. Thank you all for sharing your insights and stories today on Climate One. On this Climate One, we've been talking about disrupted global energy markets with Kate Larson, Justin Gway, and David Turk. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your pods. We know that talking about climate can be difficult, awkward, sometimes depressing, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of our society and our lives. Please help us get people talking more about climate and doing more by giving us a rating or review if you're listening to this on Apple. You can do that right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Our team also includes Steve Fox and Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.